0: Art and Heidi, thank you. That's a wonderful way for us to come into our time together under His word. Please be turning, if you haven't already, to the Book of Jude. We return here now. This will be our third week in Jude's letter. We'll be looking at verses five through seven this morning, and that that look will extend into next week as well. As we come to verses five through seven, we're coming to a pretty blunt set of statements. We'll read it together here in just a moment, and you'll be reminded that what we have here is a set of warnings, uh, taking the form of reminders. We're going to take a hard look at, uh, at the point that he has for us in his warnings, and we'll also remind ourselves of why God would give warnings like this, reminders like this, to a group of people that he has said are called by God, uh, kept and loved. It's going to be important for us. We know ourselves well enough to know that sometimes we need blunt, don't we? Sometimes blunt is the only way to get a point across to people like us. Now, we watched two weeks ago as Jude declared something, uh, something amazing about these false teachers that he's warning his hearers about. He said that they were, in verse 4, you might remember, he said they were long ago designated for this condemnation. He hadn't yet spoken about any condemnation yet. He was referring to the condemnation that's about to be exemplified in these reminders. And he said of them that they were long ago designated for this condemnation that's coming to them. At its root, we found in verse 4 that the problem here is one of denying Jesus' claim on us as our Master and Lord. They deny it. They may deny it explicitly by their words. Uh, More likely, they are denying it by the insinuations of their teaching, and they're denying it by their lifestyle, by how they are living. Uh, They deny it. And so, as a result, for them, for these teachers that are standing up amongst this congregation, every boundary now is a thing to be pushed. We saw that in verse 4. Nothing is sacred any longer. The grace of God is a grace, it's a kind of grace that creates a platform for sensuality and for conduct that is simply out of bounds. Verses 5 through 7 is going to stem directly from verse 4 there. And one of the things we're going to see is that there is something visible and observable that separates those who have trusted in Christ and everyone else. It can be easy for us, and I think we do fall into this in our time, uh, this, this sense, and we might even give voice to it, that really what, what distinguishes us as believers from the rest of the world is purely a matter of the inside. It's a matter of convictions we hold and things that are, that are changing in us inside, but of course we're still sinners, and so on the outside really we're the same as everyone else. That is not true, and these examples bear that out very powerfully for us. What we're seeing here, to put it simply, is a warning against apostasy. Have you heard that word lately, apostasy? The sin of having received truth from God, having seen it even to be true, and then having walked away from it. Apostasy cannot keep itself hidden in a life forever. And the way that Jude's going to get this across is by using, we'll see, especially next week, a device that the Jews have been using for some time now, having to do with three key examples in the Old Testament of both deliverance and destruction. These examples that he's going to bring us to have been recorded over and over again in a number of Jewish pieces of literature as examples of this very point when he refers them to these examples, they would be expecting these to come together. But Jude knows enough by now, more than the Jews of old have known. Jude knows enough because of the faithful teaching of the apostles and his own experience and sitting under the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude knows something else. Jude looks back at these examples and he recognizes Jesus' role in those happenings. So what we're going to see this morning is this. We're going to see... Those whom Jesus delivers and those whom Jesus destroys. Jesus is found to be in the New Testament not just, not simply God, but a God who intervenes. So who is it then that finds Jesus intervening to be a thing of deliverance? And who, when they encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, encounters their own destruction? We're going to see you back and forth between deliverance and destruction. And this morning, our task as we sit under this word from the Lord proclaimed is not just to understand the examples, although we will be spending time getting into the examples themselves, but our objective is to get the point. What is Jude's point in presenting these to us? What is the Holy Spirit's point this morning in bringing us under this text? Our task is to hear it, to understand what God is telling us about Himself and about his will for us, and to change in any place where we find our lives failing to accord with his holy word. So I ask you before we read together, did you come here this morning ready to change wherever God's word might expose you? We're going to read, uh, and especially since it has been a week since we've been in Jude, I'd like us to read what we have studied so far and then bring in the passage for this morning. So I'll be reading Jude 1 through 7 to you this morning. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the hearing of God's Word? Jude 1 through 7 says this. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And if you would, please, let's bow together once more to give Him thanks and to ask Him to guard us and to open our eyes as we hear from Him. Heavenly Father, we we do just that. We, We see this morning as an act of great kindness from our Father an act of great kindness from our God and King and Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that your spirit is at work among us, causing us to rejoice, recounting to us your goodness in the past, your blessings. And Lord, as we open your word now and we find these, these reminders, we ask that you would cause us to hear them, cause us to understand what you have for us to see in this passage and to know that you are speaking to us this morning. You intend for us to take this into our mouths and to eat it and to be fed by it. So, Lord, grow your people, and we thank you for your faithfulness to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 5 in particular here is where we'll spend our time this morning. Um, Do you see the two sides of of this coin? Who does Jesus deliver and who does Jesus destroy? As we go from verse to verse this week and next week, we'll look at both sides of that coin uh, because they are both there. Let me reread verse 5. It said this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. We see in verse 5, just to put it simply, from the outset What is it that we see in answer to this question of of Jesus and his relation to those that he intervenes for? We see that Jesus delivers those who persist in faith, and Jesus destroys those who do not persist in their lives in belief in him. That's the big picture of what we're going to see. There is a lot to think through in terms of how we are to understand that and to uh, apply it. What are the implications of that? And that will be our task this morning. As we come into the verse, though, let's start with a clarification. Uh, do you see where he says, uh, although you once fully knew it? Depending on the Bible that you're reading from, I read that out of the ESV. There, there's a number of different ways to, uh, that that is put for us, and that can cause some confusion. Let's just clarify that at the beginning. Now, it is out of place here, given what he's, how he's been treating his hearers. It's out of place to read that and think that Jude is criticizing them. I don't know if that's how you read it, but that's how I first hear that statement. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, sounds like this is something that they knew and they've let themselves forget. Uh, this is a criticism. Uh, that's foreign to the, to the intent here in Jude, um, suggesting that they have forgotten these things. He's bringing to the forefront of their mind things, he's saying, that they already know. There is nothing in the past tense in this uh, statement that he makes to them, which is why, for example, the NIV translates it this way, though you already know all this, I think that's a better way to, to hear what he's saying. The New American Standard says, though you know all things once for all, I would remind you. Do you hear the difference there that, uh, in terms of how we might understand it? These are things that they know which doesn't mean that they wouldn't be helped by a reminder. Isn't that the case for us? Many times there are things that we know and we know well, but having someone say it right now, and not just remind you of the reality of it, but remind you that it applies to exactly what you're going through. There's something powerful about doing that, about doing what Jude is doing for his hearers here. These stories he's about to bring back to their attention are applicable to what they're going through. And the reminder itself is really quite, uh, it's, 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 it's really something. Do you notice that he goes all the way back to the Exodus? And listen to what he does. He goes back to Exodus, to God saving a people out of Egypt. He sees the work attributed to Yahweh there, to the Lord, and he says then, notice what we learn about Jesus. Notice what we learn about Jesus. Who saved Israel out of Egypt? Jesus did. It's quite a connection for him to make. We find in the New Testament it's not at all unusual for those sorts of things to be drawn together. It's it's common, in fact, that the apostles, the writers of Scripture, look back and they see the Lord Jesus Christ at work. It's very likely some of what Jesus himself did uh, when he taught in places like Luke 24, verse 27, which says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he said in another blunt statement in John 5:46, speaking to Jewish uh, critics of him, he said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. <laughs> Moses wrote about me. How can you say that you are sons of Moses and not follow me? He was writing about me. If you believed him, you would believe me. These from the teachings of Christ directly. Paul will credit Christ directly with the spiritual provision that the wilderness generation received. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10.4, he will speak of them being spiritually nourished in the wilderness as it were, drinking from the spiritual rock. And he says, that rock was Christ. Paul will take the events of Isaiah 45, 23, the promise there that says, every knee will bow to Yahweh. Paul will will quote that and apply it directly to Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. This is a theme that we see. In John chapter 12, John does it. He points back, do you remember Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 6? The the throne room vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. John refers to that vision of Isaiah 6 in John chapter 12. And he says that Isaiah was seeing the glory of Christ. Jesus as the God-man, the incarnation, flesh and blood of the very glory of God, first appeared in Scripture in the book of Matthew. But Jesus, the Eternal One, the second person of the Trinity, has been very busy since the early pages of Genesis. And Jude's reminder here in verse 5 is blunt. Uh, And having just brought us through all of that, let me remind you, what did he end verse 4 talking about? What have they done? They have denied that Jesus as the only Master and Lord. Now we go right from four into five, and can you hear the power here, the bluntness, as if he's telling them, as you're you're being faced with these teachers, who by their teaching and certainly by their example, seek to lead you away from Jesus as your only master and Lord, do you remember what we have seen from Jesus in the past? What does Jesus do with those who do not remain with him? Do we have no example that would lead us to judge whether that's wise or not, to wander from him as our only master and Lord? And Jude's point here is, no, we, uh, we, we are not lacking in examples. So he would remind us of what we have seen in the past. And verse 5 is the first of these reminders. Remember who you're talking about. Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now we see two sides of that coin in that statement. Jesus did graciously deliver in the book of Exodus. In his mercy and grace, he rescued the entire nation out of their oppression in Egypt. The question is, what kind of grace was that? What do we learn about the nature of the grace God extends on this earth? Was it a grace leading to sensuality? As these false teachers are uh, boasting, they, the champions of God's grace, they who really appreciate God's grace so that in the grace of God I can live a sensual life. That's how gracious God is. Is that the grace that Jesus extended when he saved a people out of the land of Egypt? A grace that permits its recipients to throw him off as their Lord? No, it's not. How do we know that? Well, after he delivered the nation, what do we see as we continue to read the story? He subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Those who did not continue to look upon him in trust and conviction and settled faith as their rescuer. And so we see a principle at work here. Those whom, and remember we spoke about the, the three-tenths uh, reality of our salvation. We are a people as God's chosen ones who have been saved, who are being saved, who will be saved. The Bible speaks of salvation in those terms. So here's what we learn. Those who Jesus has saved, is saving, will save. What's true of them? What's true of them in verse 5? is that they will continue in their conviction that he is trustworthy that he is worthy of any cost that would be asked of them. Now compare that to what we see in this example. Compare that to the wilderness generation of the Israelites. That's what he's pointing to here. Do you remember all of the stories that comes out of Exodus? That comes out of that generation that was saved out of Egypt? And went through, went to Sinai, received the Ten Commandments, went through the wilderness, got to the edge of the Promised Land. Do you remember all of the stories that come from that generation? It's the group that we tend to groan when we listen to, groan when we have to study. Because we hear of all of the miracles they witnessed with their own eyes. And we hear of people whose complaints through their life never end. Whose doubting of God's providing for them never ends. And whose discontentment seems to have no end. It's the group that he is referring to. He might be thinking of a specific example in their history. If so, probably Numbers, the book of Numbers chapter 14. We'll look at that in just a moment. But we need to recognize that his description here in verse 5 fits them from the moment that they passed through the Red Sea. This, is, this description is true of them at every point, virtually. Exodus 32 Uh, You remember the golden calf incident. Moses is up on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. Uh, Already there, there is a failure to endure in belief in the one true God. Moses doesn't come down right when they expect him to, and so they fear. And the solution to their fear is the familiar. So they tell Aaron to make a calf, a golden calf, uh, that they might worship and call their God that led them out of the land of Egypt. And that chapter ends with 3,000 dead Israelites. At the end of that chapter, there's already judgment for unbelief happening. But their unbelief continues after that, doesn't it? As I mentioned, and most, most think this to be a direct reference probably to Numbers 14. That's where the spies came back from the promised land. Do you remember that? Turn with me for just a moment back to Numbers 14. So you can remember this. We will look this morning at a couple of places outside of Jude that speak very similarly to very, to, very, uh, to very like situations that will be helpful for us. Numbers 14, the 12 spies have come back from the promised land. They were sent to spy it out and get a sense of what they were expecting. Ten bad reports come back, right? Only two of the 12 come back with any degree of, of confidence in the power and protection of God. And the people side with the ten. So that in verse 4, they say, let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. In verse 10, they have already picked up stones in their hands to kill Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? in spite of all the signs that I have done among them. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. That verb is a verb that means to destroy. In fact, in the Greek, the Greek Old Testament, it simply uses the general word for destroy. Uh, I will strike them with pestilence and destroy them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Do you hear the two direct uh, statements of God that Jude alludes to here? They failed to believe, and they were destroyed. Now, the story, of course, continues. Moses intercedes for them, and God does not wipe them all out that day. But what happens to all of those that he's speaking of here? The Lord condemns them to wander that wilderness until every one of them has dropped dead in the wilderness. In fact, the language that he uses in the verses to come gets pretty graphic. It speaks of corpses strewn in the wilderness as they wait for every one of them to fall dead. I would remind you that Jesus, after saving a people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who would not believe. Even in that story, though, we get the other side of the coin, right? Although in that in that generation there are only two that decide Jesus is trustworthy. I will follow the Lord God wherever He sends me, whatever the appearances those two are delivered. Joshua and Caleb enter the promised land, which is a picture for us to see of deliverance. All of those who endure in looking to God as their rescuer, trusting his promises, they are not disappointed. They're delivered. Now, before we go back to Jude, turn with me to one other place. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, please. Paul is writing here, and you're going to be maybe surprised at just how similar his words sound here to what we're finding in a smaller version in Jude 5. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. He's going to point to the wilderness generation as well. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Remember that all of them experienced all of these reasons to trust. All of these assurances that God is with them. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most of them is a tremendous understatement there, given what we just read and given how this story of this generation ends. Now look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to the golden calf incident. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Does this sound like a similar theme to Jude 5? Two more verses. 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And then this verse that we read last week. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, when verse 6 called those events examples, he uses the word tupos, the word for type. It's been suggested here that we translate that as a paradigm or as a model. What happened there, what God did to them there, he did and recorded and passed on to us so that what happened might serve to us as a, as a paradigm setting. Leon Morris said it well when he said, no one who seriously considers what God did the sinning Israelites will lightly follow their example. So let me ask you, what what does it seem to you that is, is the idea that we're being given here as God's people? The Spirit led you to say, I want to remind you of this event. Let me remind you of what we learned from what happened with that generation. What is the idea that he has for us? What does it serve us to be reminded of this? I want to remind you that Jesus, after saving a people out of Egypt, destroyed those who did not persevere in their belief. The warning here is clear. In this life, we will have tribulation. You remember when Jesus said that? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this life, we will have tribulation. Will you rest in the conviction that Jesus has overcome the world? We confess that truth with our mouths, and we must confess it with our mouths. But life in this world will challenge that confession. It's what Jews' hearers are facing. They confess this. They're coming against ideas and examples and pressures that would challenge that confession. And his call to them is to contend earnestly for the faith. Are we contending for that confession? What What do I do? In my life? What do I say to myself when the Lord reveals to me a pattern of grumbling about life? Do any of us struggle with grumbling and we suddenly sometimes become aware that this is probably what anyone has ever heard of me the last three months they've ever gotten together with me? A pattern of doubt or fear, a pattern of complaining. What do we do when the Lord reveals those those patterns that would seem to match some of what God has given example of in the past? What do I say to myself when I'm trying to argue and speak truth into my life? There is not one person in this room who can hear this warning and not have truths about themselves brought to mind. I don't know about you, but I find that to be very comforting. That as I sit and consider myself as I am today in comparison to these warnings, and I find myself wanting in areas... I look around and I remember I am, I am in good company. I am with God's people, all of whom find themselves wanting as we are faced with the warnings and reminders of Scripture. What sets us apart as the children of God, oh, that we would, that we would understand this and be settled in this. What sets us apart as God's children is not that these warnings find nothing in us to convict, What sets us apart is that we are the sheep of God, and so we hear his voice when he speaks. We hear his voice when he calls. We believe his warnings. We don't hear his warnings and think them inapplicable. We don't hear his warnings and yawn at them. They bother us. They cause us to wonder and to grow introspective. They cause us to be discontent about where we stand at the moment. As we are searched out by His Word and exposed. That's what the Lord does to His children with His Word. He brings it as light and He exposes us. What do God's children do when they are exposed by the light of His Word? They don't run from it, they don't run from Him, they run toward Him. And so we find ourselves exposed and we pray. We lament at what we have, what's been brought to our attention. We work to repent. We pray to God for a spirit of repentance. And we pursue it zealously. We follow through on convictions. Maybe, if, maybe I've been living um, a, a life of ungratefulness before the Lord. I just generally think and kind of have this mentality that, um, that things are always going wrong for me. And that the Lord is not really uh, there in His provision and in His kindness. And I'm convicted in that. Maybe today I follow through on the conviction I've had lately. Of You know, maybe what I need to be doing is I need to be writing down my fears, my doubts, and my struggles. So that when the Lord takes that away from me, when the Lord provides in a surprising way, or he causes me to grow in ways I wouldn't have expected, I can write that down beside it too. And in a few years I'll have a book. That is a testament of God's faithfulness to me through my trials. As opposed to what maybe I've had for the last ten years. A series of those things really happening. And a man who forgets them the moment I'm relieved from my, from my struggles. Do you, do you ever do that? Go through difficulties? Come out the other side and have a short-term memory? You know what that produces? Ingratitude. A sense of, of uh, an expectation that the Lord is not going to ever change what's going on. As he exposes that to me. I take steps to fight it, to combat it. I reach out to others who have gone before me and have more wisdom than I do, and I ask them, what have you done with this? A child of God is not one who finds no conviction in this reminder. A child of God is one who hears the Lord's voice and, and listens to it. As we hear from the Lord, we are put in our place, which is where we must be. Job felt justified to question and struggle until he heard the Lord speak. And then he put his hand over his mouth. If there's one thing that this wilderness generation seems to have never done, it was to put their hand over their mouth. So let's, let's draw together what we have seen so far and prepare for how this aligns us with what will be coming next week as well. As we continue in verses 6 and 7. Jude is reminding his hearers of what we know about Jesus. Jesus is gracious to save those that he loves and keeps. Those that the Lord has called to himself. And he loves us with a jealous love. He does not change So what he's revealed, what Jesus has revealed to us about God in the past is true in our present. And therefore past examples are directly helpful and relevant to us. We've seen that his work with the wilderness generation is supposed to have set up for us a paradigm of thinking. We should expect God to do today as he's done in the past. We look to those who whose willingness to trust, to believe in the promises of God in Christ. We see those who have that belief visibly, but as we watch them in their lives, that belief, that conviction does not remain with them. They allow themselves to grow cold. They grow distant from the Lord, and they come to a place in their life where they say, no, I can't, no. No. I will no longer follow him in this convictional belief. What do we expect the Lord to do to those who will not follow and continue in belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? We expect destruction because that's the paradigm that has been set for us in the past. Ephesians 3.10 tells us that we, as his people, are his workmanship. And God's workmanship bears the marks of God's work, does it not? It has been said that the principal mark of the Lord's work in a life is the mark of perseverance. Jonathan Edwards said perseverance is the one fruit that's visible that cannot be duplicated by our enemy. In verse 5, we see perseverance in faith is what we're being called to. Perseverance in trust, in reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see more manifestations of that trust Next week as well. We as his people, we will persist in trusting the Lord Jesus. Because he has shown us that he is our refuge. Have you come to see that in your life? That you have no refuge but the Lord Jesus Christ. Last place I'll have you turn. Look over at Colossians chapter 1 for just a moment. Three verses there. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul recounts to these that he's writing to. He recounts their past and what the Lord has done in them. And he says in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith. Is that what you expected to come next? If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Do you hear the warning there as we hear it in Jude 5? Oh, brother, you were once separated from God, hostile to him, his enemy. But by the death of Jesus on the cross, he has reconciled you to himself. And his his work that he will bring to completion, his work is to present you holy and blameless before him. But realize, believer, this is true of you only if you continue with him. Now, what are we saying? Are we saying that a believer in Christ can lose his salvation? No, not at all. Absolutely not. It's not the conclusion from these warnings. What the Bible's doing here is describing for us what salvation really is. Salvation from God is not a profession. Salvation from God is becoming a new creation. This is what the Lord does when he saves a person. They pass from death to life. They become a new creature. And what's being emphasized in verse 5 of our text this morning is that we will fit the description of, say, places like 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10. Just listen to how Paul describes. Beginning in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This sort of passage is beautiful to us because it speaks to the truth about our lives. Our lives are difficult. And as believers in particular, We face many temptations and trials. We are truly afflicted. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. But what ties all of those statements of his together is the assurance that in all of that, we are never crushed. We are never driven to despair. We are never forsaken. We are never ultimately destroyed. There's a confidence in God's power to preserve his children. Now, Paul wrote that. But do you remember when Peter lived it in John chapter 6? Jesus had just said some things to the crowd following him that sounded insane. He had said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And a great number of people said, That's it. And they couldn't bear anymore, and they walked away. And Jesus turns to the twelve, who, given their track record at that time, I think we could imagine were equally confused by the statement and probably disturbed, in a sense, having not understood what he had said. And he asked them, Will you go too? Peter's response was, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have nothing in his words there that that would suggest to us that he is not struggling with being perplexed in that moment. But there is something settled in the mind of this one who has followed the Lord Jesus Christ. I will not cross that line. I may not understand, but you've shown me that your words are life to me. When I hear you, Jesus, I hear the voice of God. I hear it. Jesus said in John chapter 8 to the Jews who had believed him, he said, if you abide in my word, that word abide means remain, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I want to remind us of something that we said last time. This is a place we need to remember. Abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, is characteristic of believers, not because of something in us, but because of God's commitment to the salvation of His people. And remember that we made it clear last time that as the Lord is preserving His people, every one of them to the end, He is working in that. And He works through means to preserve us to the end of our lives. One of those means being the very sorts of warnings that we're coming across here in verses 5 through 7. And here's what that means for you this morning. Wherever you are right now, on the spectrum of fixed confidence in the plans and power of Christ, wherever you are, he gives you this warning this morning because you need it. You need it. And as a child of God, his intention is to give you this warning and for it to be useful for you this morning. It's the prayer of every believer, isn't it? that wonderful statement that we heard in the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that the prayer of every single one of us? God grant that I would trust you more. Help me in my struggle to be able to speak from a firm conviction. What Job said in Job chapter 13, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. As we continue in this passage next week, we're going to see some of the outward manifestations that come from that belief because true belief is never something that simply stays in one's head. When I try to persist in believing something only in my head and never in a way that is translated out of my mind and into my field of vision, into the world around me, that's a belief I'm going to struggle to hold on to. If I love my wife in my mind... But never display that love outwardly, visibly. It is only a matter of time before the conviction of love itself begins to be challenged. Right? Isn't that our experience? It's how God has made us. And that's why he gives us regular, visible means uh, of expressing our faith. To act out. To participate in with our hands, with our eyes, with our mouths. Even, we get to do that together this morning as we share in the Lord's Supper together. What is set before our eyes this morning are symbols of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. The body broken for us, the blood poured out for us. His blood instituted for us a new covenant. And as we partake, we show our participation in that covenant. The gracious new covenant. First 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And as we participate together, which is an act that is done in obedience to the command of Jesus, it's not just that we are remembering him. It's that he is reminding us. I would encourage you to remember, even as we've seen in verse 5 of our text this morning, as we grow in grace, as we are sanctified, the Lord is doing work. We are remembering Him. But He gave this to us to remind us. And His reminders are powerful things. They shape how we think. They shape our worldview. They shape our self-identity. We are people of the new covenant, covenant inaugurated by the shed blood of our Savior. And brothers and sisters, do you you recognize this morning that is fundamentally who you are? Let's praise him together for this identity that we now share in the Lord Jesus Christ.